Well, hello again. We're going to be continuing our study in 1 Peter, starting in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, 13, you can find them if you're using the Pew Bible. That should be on page 980. Page 980. We'll be looking at verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. As I close out the reading of God's word, I will give him thanks for his word by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and encourage you to join with me in giving thanks be to God for his word. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation or creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For... All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in John Bunyan's famous classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, early in the book, the main character Christian is guided to the house of the interpreter. And he shows Christian a very large parlor full of dust as if it had never been swept. The interpreter calls in a man to sweep it. But upon doing so, the dust is stirred up into a thick cloud so thick that it almost chokes Christian. And the interpreter then calls in a woman to sprinkle water in the room, and she does, settling the dust and making the room easily cleaned. A Christian then asks the interpreter, well, what does this mean? And the interpreter explains, well, the parlor represents the heart of a man who has never been sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. He continues, the dust is that sin and inward corruption that defiles all people entirely. The man who came in to sweep, the interpreter says, well, that is the law. You see, the law can only come in and stir up the dust of sin and cause it to further overwhelm a person, even to the point of choking them, as you experienced, Christian. The law cannot clean. It can only arouse and stir up sin. For, the interpreter says, even as the law uncovers sin and forbids it, 
It does not provide the power to subdue it. However, the interpreter explains, the woman who came in and sprinkled water, causing the dust to settle and the room to be cleansed, well, she represents the power of the gospel by which sin is vanquished and subdued. You see, what Bunyan's illustration shows so well is this radical inability that we humans have prior to the new birth to obey God's law. Instead, the law comes in and it declares what we must do only to show us what we are not capable of doing in our own strength. Every command of God's law, even even commands which seem as simple as trust and obey, turn out to be not so simple after all. As Bunyan tells it in a story, Paul gets at the same thing in Romans 8, 7, and 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Be prior to the work of the gospel. In the new birth, we cannot obey that seemingly simple command of the law. Prior to the new birth, we are like that dusty room. And all the commands of God, even the simplest ones, just reveal how deep the dust of sin is resting upon our hearts and lives. What is required is the life-giving, cleansing message of the gospel. Only that message has the power to subdue the dust and to cleanse us and make us new. Well, that illustration that Bunyan tells in story form and that Paul tells through his tightly logical arguments in Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere, Peter is going to give us through his grammar. So for those of you, my fellow grammar nerds amongst us this morning, you're going to be in luck. If you do not love grammar this morning, bear with me, I'll try and make sense of it. But Peter is going to give us just a a, a master class in how to use grammar to prove a point. Here's, Here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. And that is one big, long sentence in the Greek, this big, complex sentence. And at the grammatical level, what is fascinating and essential to understand about that sentence is this. There are no imperatives in that sentence. There's no commands. There's no exhortations. There's no admonitions to be found in that sentence. Every verb is in the indicative mood, which means it's a statement of fact. In particular, it's a statement of fact of what God and God alone has accomplished. And that was the central point of that big, long sentence we saw two weeks ago, where Peter praises and blesses God for this incredible salvation, which has, Peter says, caused us to be born again to a living hope and an eternal inheritance. It was the indicatives that Peter proclaimed. And those indicatives that bring about this new birth in us and even give us faith that was shielded by God, we read in verse 5, to keep that inheritance is precisely what Paul teaches elsewhere. Even our faith is a gift from God. Or as Hebrews 12, 1 says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. As Bunyan had said, we need the water of the gospel to cleanse us before we can obey these imperatives. And that's why Peter... And his grammar started with a big, long sentence of indicatives, of gospel facts accomplished for us by God. Only after that declaration, and only on the basis of what God has done for us in the gospel, do the imperatives, do the commands, the admonitions make any sense at all. 
Peter now is going to shift his grammar and introduce a number of imperatives, a number of commands. And in these commands, he's going to teach us how to be living as pilgrims, which is the title of our sermon. And hold your horses. This Baptist pastor is going to give you a four-point sermon this morning. All four points will be up there on the board along with the argument. And the argument is this. Christians hope in grace, live as the redeemed, love sincerely, and desire the word. That's there at the bottom, and each of the points just further expands that argument into a larger comment. But first, hope completely on his grace. Look again at verses 13 through 16. Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So again, to further clarify and and make sure we're clear on the fact that Peter's grammar is doing the work for us, his first word is therefore. That is, it's an inference based off of everything he's just said. So all the facts that were stated in verses 3 through 12 are now going to be pressed in and commands are going to be based on those facts. All those actions of God and what he accomplished should result in us obeying these commands. Now, the actual imperative verb here in this first section is set your hope fully on the grace of God. That's the the main verb, which is fascinating because the whole sentence he gave us in verses 3 through 12 was praising God for the grace that saved us. And so his first command is to do what? Hope in that grace that has saved us, drawing us back again to the indicative fact of what God has done. And the means by which or how we are to go about setting our hope on the grace of God alone, the NIV reads, with minds that are alert. Well, I preferred the King James or just translating to Greek literally, it's girding up the loins of your mind. That's a great translation. Uh, what, what it is doing is this. So back in the Exodus and Old Testament times, the men would wear longer robes, and the idea of girding up your loins was you'd tie those things through your legs and kind of turn them into shorts so they wouldn't get in your way as you would run and fight. So in other words, Peter's saying the means that we go about setting our hope on God's grace is to work out your mind. Think. Learn to think hard and carefully. It's an active thing that we have to press into, which is to say this. The Christian faith is unavoidably, irreducibly tied to truth claims, to facts, to those indicatives. And that's why the word faith is often used interchangeably with a body of doctrine, with things you must believe. Jude will say, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, referring to the totality of what we are to believe. So perhaps you're visiting here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian. And perhaps you've thought or known Christians who would say that to take things on faith means that we are to believe in that which is unprovable. But friends, I would say Peter just simply will not have that. Make no mistake, many have claimed that type of thing. There was a famous Anglican rector at one point who said, even if it could be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus didn't rise, he rose in my heart. Well, that's a denial of historic Christianity. Now, the Christian claim is he really did live, and he really did die, 
And he really did rise again. It is a historic reality. God broke into time and interrupted time in the person of Jesus, who was born and lived and died. And there is tons of historic evidence that proves this very fact. So much so, we have more evidence for Jesus than for someone like Socrates, who is very well known. See, ours, friends, is not a faith devoid of fact. That's why the original witnesses, the eyewitnesses of the gospel, they went to their death saying, I saw him after he had died. He rose again. We broke fish and bread and ate. For them, this was not a secret. It wasn't done in a corner. No, they, they over and over again in their writings, they say, if you don't believe me, go ask them. There's 500 people who saw him after he rose from the dead. Go ask them. See, nobody dies for a lie. And that's precisely what the New Testament authors, many of them, did. They died for the truth claim that Jesus rose from the dead. So, friend, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please understand, when we say we have to have faith in Jesus, it is a mental activity of processing truth claims in history. And the way we go about setting our hope on the grace of God is by girding up the loins of our mind, by hard work of thought and, and study. See, Christianity is no place for lazy thinking. It's a call to disciplining our mind. Actually, Paul or Peter goes on to say, be fully sober. He, he's not referring to don't get drunk. Of course, there's elsewhere that talks about that. But in the context, he's speaking about your thinking. Don't get drunk, lazy with your thinking. Be clear-headed in your thinking. Think carefully, set fully your hope on the grace of God. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you have questions about these claims, I would love to speak with you more afterwards. I'll be standing there in the back. So here, Peter, he's taken this declaration of God's salvation in verse 3 through 12, and it results then in this charge to set their hope completely on what Jesus has done through the means of careful thinking. And then look at verse 14 again. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed or do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So notice, don't be conformed, be transformed is how Paul puts it. That's an active issue. Being conformed is passive. So that's why we have to actively set our hope through thinking carefully. But it's interesting. He, he mentions this thing. We can read past it quickly. The evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Uh, down in verse 18, he goes on to say that they had this empty way of life inherited from their ancestors, which is to say this, that the majority of Peter's audience is Gentiles, not Jews. Now, it's probably a mixed audience for sure, but Jews could never say that they were handed down an empty way of life from their ancestors. Jews could not claim ignorance of the law of God. No, they were the ones to whom these things had been revealed. But now, Peter says, these things have been revealed to us as well. They've gone to Jew and Gentile. They're going to those of every tongue and tribe and nation. They're to go to the whole world. And the call now is that for all those who've been washed and cleansed and made alive by the gospel message. We are now those who are God's children. And so we are to be holy just as God is holy. That is his call here. So we set our minds, we set our hope entirely on God's grace, and it should result in us, children of God, being made more holy, like God is holy. But what does that word holy mean? 
Christians, we have our own vocabulary, right? Because we, we have the Bible that gives us some of these words. And that word holy can be rather confusing to us. It's one of those ones that sometimes it's not so clearly defined. Well, there's many great books that can help us think through what this means about being holy. But one of my favorites is a book called God in the Whirlwind by David Wells. The, the subtitle is How God's Holy Love Reorients Our World. And in the chapter where he gets around to defining holiness, this is what Wells says. He says that holiness is kind of an umbrella term that covers an array of God's moral perfections. In other words, holiness in God is everything that sets him apart from a sinful creation. And it is everything that elevates him above it in moral splendor. Or, or other writers have put it this way, that God's holiness is what points to his godness. It, it signifies everything about God that sets him apart, that makes him the object of awe and adoration and dread. And so Peter grounds this call for them to be holy in the Old Testament scriptures. He does this as a pattern of this letter, be holy as I am holy. <laughs> but if you're paying attention, and if holiness is what kind of makes God God, that's rather impossible, is it not? Be holy as God is holy? The whole thing about holiness is it, it shows God is other. Well, what God is really calling us to is this ongoing separation from sin. Because the gospel water has done its work of cleansing us, we are to be those who don't go back into the collecting of dust, who continue to allow that water of the gospel to wash us clean. And we do that by setting our hope entirely, completely, on the grace of God that has been and will be revealed in what Jesus has done. And this setting our hope on God's grace requires the disciplining of our minds, as we've seen. But one thing about this being holy that I think I want to clarify for us, sometimes Christians have taken this idea of being holy as hiding out. The, the, the idea of holiness is oftentimes separateness, but sometimes we have taken that too far. And we hide out from the world, we, the holy huddle or the, the bunker, the Christian bunker. But friends, that's not what Jesus did. I mean, he came and he dined with the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were the worst traitors of them all. So friends, I just would want to caution us. Being holy as God is holy doesn't mean that we just live in our holy household and we never engage with the world around us. No, we're to be those who, yes, are growing in holiness, but also to be those who are allowing our holiness to be a light to those around us. Peter's going to go on to argue that very thing later in this letter. But the trick here is, as we go about being holy in the public square, we have to be careful that we're not being conformed by the public square. Which raises the question. Friends, if Peter's point is that we must hope in God, and that being conformed to the world means that hope's going to get transferred to something other than God, well, what are those things? that cause your hope in Christ to fade? Where are those other places where your hope tends to land? Or where your hope is shaken because something goes wrong? Well, friends, those would be the areas where we have to gird up the loins of our mind, where we have to be sober and careful about our thinking so that way we can press on to being transformed by God's word rather than conformed to the world. Well, that's Peter's first point. 
And then as he calls us to be holy, he then also calls us, and the second point, to live in fear as his redeemed. Live in fear as his redeemed. Look at verses 17 through 21. The NIV says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, Peter has said in the last section that we are obedient children, which means, he goes on, that we are those who call God Father. But while we call God Father, God is also, he says, the perfect judge. Uh, the, the judge who is impartial. Uh, nobody can buy their way into favor with this judge. Now, he's perfect. Well, this raises a challenge, because depending upon your childhood, the idea of God as Father might be challenging enough as it is. But when you hear of God as Father, who's also the impartial judge, I imagine for some it might bring anxiety or an unhealthy fear. I imagine some in this room had earthly fathers and childhoods that were exceedingly broken. I mean, I experienced that to some degree. And because of that struggle, because of that childhood, you might really have a hard time processing what does it mean for God to be Father, especially if He's the impartial judge. Well, this is where we need to listen closely to Peter's grammar. And unfortunately, the NIV doesn't follow Peter's grammar. Uh, the NIV there in verse 17 says, since you call on God as Father. But what the text actually says is this, if, or if indeed you call God Father, and the point is this, Peter is trying to draw you into his narrative. He's trying to get your attention. If indeed you call this God Father, if indeed you are an obedient child, well then, God is your Father. And yes, he's a perfect, impartial judge. But if you call him Father, then, verse 18, then you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. No, you were redeemed with the precious blood of the spotless and blameless lamb. No, friends, if indeed you call God Father, then this same God and Father is the one who sent his only eternal son to live in your place and to take the penalty for your sins. So when that judgment comes, it does not fall on you. If you have repented and trusted in Christ, it has already fallen on him, the son the one whose blood purchased a people for God. Now, now, to be sure here, God the Father and God the Son have dwelt eternally together. And so God was not this abusive Father sending His Son. No, Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly agreed together, what theologians call the pactum salutis. It was the agreement between the Trinity that the Son would come and live and die and redeem a people for God. And that's what verse 20 goes on to say, that he, Jesus, was chosen, the NIV reads. I think the King James is better. He was verily foreordained before the creation of the world to redeem a people for God as his own, with his own precious blood. So friends, that's Peter's point. If you call God Father, then look at what kind of father he is. 
the one who did not spare his own son for those who would trust in Christ. So friends, all the fear of the Lord becomes the beginning of wisdom. Oh yes, you you should fear the Lord because he is an impartial judge, but that's the beginning of wisdom because it causes you to see what this father has paid for his people. So friends, if your earthly fathers failed you, Peter's whole point here is that this father can never fail you. Because you see, his plan began before the creation of the world, right? It says he chose this son who willingly came. Now again, P- Peter says that the father chose the son. I mentioned in the first sermon, though, this, this is actually the word where if you wouldn'tly translate it, it'd be the word forno, and some translations will have that, so maybe you see that. But the NIV's right. It, God chose him, or again, the King James, he was foreordained. Since God is not bound by time, he doesn't foreknow. He declares the end from the beginning. No, God planned, or as Revelation 13, 8 says, the plan was that Jesus would be the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus was plan A. So to put it another way, God's choosing and predestining us flows from his first choosing and predestining his son to die for his people and redeem them. Because God eternally chose Jesus to die for his family then we are those chosen to be adopted as part of that family. That's how Paul puts it. Or as J.I. Packer famously put it this way, we have to wrap our minds around this idea of being adopted into God's family. He wrote this, you can sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how, person, how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. You see, if this is not the thought that controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God, who sent his one and only son to make us adopted sons and daughters of the king. And that's precisely why Peter goes on to say in verse 21, look at 21 again, through him, through Jesus, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Because there's one God eternally existing as three people. And yes, that causes our brains to hurt. But that is how the plan has been unfolded. So that question then for us is, friend, do we call God our father? Is this the thought that more and more shapes your worship, your prayers, and your lives? And friends, if you feel uncertain, if the idea of God as Father troubles you, then I want to encourage you to connect with other brothers and sisters. That's why Christians have used that language down through the years. Connect with other brothers and sisters and make sure you're pressing into this idea. Because all the language here is in the plural. You all need to understand God as your father. And that brings us to our third point. This you all is Peter's going to show us how we are to love as those born of the living word. Look at verses 22 through 25. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, 
and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So we've seen Peter's argument unfolding that Christians are to hope in grace and to live as the redeemed. And here we learn how they're to love sincerely. And what allows us to love sincerely is our conversion. That, that's what that phrase means. It says that obeying the truth. Is, uh, the NIV puts it, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Uh, if you go look up that phrase, obeying the truth, many times in the New Testament, it refers to our response of repentance and faith. To obey the truth of the gospel is to repent and trust in Christ. All of you who have repented and trusted in Christ, you are now those obedient children adopted into God's family. And the purpose of that conversion, of that obedience of the truth, is so that we would have sincere love for each other. We love one another deeply from the heart. I like to emphasize this point often because the New Testament is really clear, but American Christianity has tended to make a mess of this. Is it, friends, while we are individually saved by grace through faith, our salvation is never individualistic. Did you see what he says? You have purified your souls. You've converted. You've repented and trusted in Christ so that you have sincere love for each other. We are saved into a body of Christ. In particular, in Peter's context, into a local body of Christians. That's why he wrote to those Christians who are in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Peter's the one who preached the sermon at Pentecost, who said, repent and be baptized and be added to those local churches where you can love each other sincerely and deeply. So our conversion, friends, unites us to God's people. That's how he designed it. And the challenge, though, is that we live in such an anti-commitment age, an anti-institutional age. But friends, this is why, for years, Christians often had a church covenant. It was a solidification of our commitment to walk out our Christian life together. Just as in a marriage covenant, where we often fail to live up to what we promised, as Mary so wisely said yesterday, when giving her vows, I'm not going to keep these perfectly. So too, when we give vows to each other in a church covenant, we're doing the same thing. We're saying that we're going to fail each other. But our commitment to each other keeps us coming back and repenting. It keeps us coming back and loving and sincerely and deeply. And friends, just as a couple who refuses to get married is keeping a door open to make it easier to escape, so too is refusing to commit to a local church. Love requires commitment, and it always is risky. Because when you commit, you can get hurt. So to love someone truly and deeply requires that we commit. It requires that we press in to a local church. So this is why Peter says our salvation, our conversion, is for the purpose of committed love. And then he grounds this command, or he, he, he illustrates it in verses 23 through 25, which we read. Verse 23 again, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word. 
So we, we've heard Peter use this language of born again before. It was back in, in chapter or verse 3. We are born again of God. And as I said, when we looked at that passage, it actually says God caused you to be born again by his mercy. But now Peter adds another layer explaining what this being born anew or born again means. And he says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What's that all about? Well, in older language, we would talk about a man's seed, his sperm. Judah's sons wasted their seed, their sperm, on the ground, and they did not give Tamar a child, right? Peter uses the same language here to speak of our two births. I see a father, a human father, plants perishable seed, which yields a perishable child. Yes, that child's going to grow, but one day that child's going to die. But the heavenly father, when he causes the new birth, he implants an imperishable seed, which causes an eternal life. So as we saw two weeks ago, all those born again have been born anew and born into the new Jerusalem. There is no separation between being born again and being kept for eternity because you're born of imperishable seed. It cannot be lost. And just as we have no causal relationship with our first seed and birth, we have no causal relationship with our second. Every metaphor in the New Testament that speaks of salvation is that way on purpose. It's showing us it has to be a work of God. But it's a work of God that happens through the living and enduring word of God, which is the same thing Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God uses his word as the means to accomplish his ends of salvation. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40, which we read from earlier. Let's see, all humans and, and human seed is like the grass that withers and the flowers that fade. But, but that imperishable seed that is planted by God, that yields the new birth, that is planted through the living and enduring word that is preached, oh, that will endure forever because it is the imperishable word of God. And it is that last relationship to this imperishable reality that we have as united to the people of God whom we are to love deeply that Peter will bring us home with in our last point. Desire the word so that we can grow. Look at verse 1 through 3, chapter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Once again, the therefore is drawing a conclusion from everything that's been said in verses 22 through 25. Because God has caused his children to be born again with his imperishable seed through his word read and preached, and because we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, we must flee from sin, all sin that destroys dis or destroys community, all sin that would cause disunity. And that's why Peter gives this little list of sins. The first one, malice, or it could be rendered evil. In the context, it's anything that would cause ill will and destroy fellowship. And then he gets more specific, and he speaks of deceit and hypocrisy, which are ways of avoiding the full truthfulness. And then he presses down behind the attitude behind those two, and talking about envy, well, why are we sometimes deceitful or why are we sometimes hypocrites? Because we envy uh, the way someone else's life is or we envy a life that we wish we had. And then he also speaks of slander. Uh, whereas deceit and hypocrisy are often done before people, flowing from an envy, 
Slander is done behind their back, but also oftentimes flowing from envy. And what he says in all this is our deeply loving each other, in the previous section, therefore, means that we have to fight all types of sins that create disunity. Anything that would tear apart this new body, this new family that God has made. And just as the word of the living Lord, the word of the Lord is living and enduring, so too our relationships are to be living and enduring. Now, these types of relational sins, we read about them all over the place. James speaks very boldly about these sins of the tongue. And so it makes perfect sense that these sins would be mentioned. They're mentioned over and over again in the New Testament as sins we need to fight against. But did you catch how he addresses them in verse 2 and 3? It's rather strange. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. So we have these list of sins that threaten unity. And then he says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's the connection? Well, once again, Peter's grammar is the key, and once again, the NIV misses it. Uh, once again, this, is, this language, what he talks about is if, he's going to say, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's drawing us in. And just as babies must grow and mature, right? We've been newborn babies. Just as they must grow and mature and they crave pure spiritual milk, so too you must crave to grow. And if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then of course you're going to fight against disunity with local Christians and local church. Uh, Tim has a saying, if you ever see a baby that doesn't crave milk, you know something is seriously wrong. And that's Peter's point here about Christians. If you see a Christian who doesn't crave the milk of the word, but reading the word and hearing it preached, something is seriously wrong. But Peter's point is also to link that craving with unity in a local church. If we see Christians who don't crave Unity in the local church, who don't seek to love deeply in commitment to a local church, who seek to fight disunity, then something is wrong. Those who've been born of the imperishable seed of the living and enduring word will have a growing desire for the word and for the people of the word. And once again, as he's done in every section, Peter then ties this all up with an allusion to Psalm 34, verse 8. Uh, you might know that psalm, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can hear the echo of it here. Now, the NIV has, has, again, chosen not to follow his language. He uses that if, intentionally, if you have tasted, then you should desire the pure spiritual milk. Or to put it another way around, as a final point of application. Again, friend, if you find it challenging to live in unity and commitment with a local body of church members, my first question to you is actually going to be, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you seen the wonder and glory of what it is to be united to Christ and his people? Have you tasted what it is to love and be loved in a committed family of regenerate people who have been made new in Christ by the living and enduring word? Have you tasted the fruit of being a group of people redeemed by the blood redeemed how I long to proclaim it. Friends, have you tasted those things? And here's the thing, I understand. 
Sometimes it is previous trauma or hurts from other churches and past experiences that cause us to be hesitant to commit and to press in. And yes, our sinfulness will mean that we will make a hash of relationships. Committing doesn't mean that all of a sudden now everything's going to be wonderful. It means that we're going to repent and press on. We'll be those who must struggle to love each other. So friends, even if it means starting small, find one or two others to meet with regularly and press into loving the word and loving each other. Or as Peter has said throughout this whole section, friends, Christians, born-again Christians, those born of the imperishable seed of God are those who hope in grace. They live as the redeemed. They love sincerely and they desire the word. Does that describe us? Well, if not, then there's one last thing we need to be reminded of. I opened with the vivid picture of John Bunyan, his contrasting of the broom stirring up the dust of our sin and choking us out, and how the law, these commands, can't ever actually save us. The commands can only show us how we fail. And that's why, as Peter has done so well in this letter, starting it with the gospel and weaving it in every way he can, to show us that our hope must be set fully on the grace of God. The grace of God revealed in his first coming as the spotless lamb and in his second coming as our king. See, he's woven these indicative facts about what God has done and accomplished in Christ right between the imperatives to drive us back again and again to hope in his grace. Or as that same John Bunyan put it elsewhere pithily, run, John, run, the law commands but it gives neither feet nor hands. Far greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the wonderful gospel indicatives, the statements about who you are, about what your plan was in your son, and about the work that he has accomplished for us. So, Lord, will we be those who have tasted and seen the goodness of these things? And would they cause us to press into loving each other deeply, to being and craving your word more and more, and to loving those around us by pointing them to your son as well? We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.